Well, if you have your Bible this morning, we'll be in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12, starting in verse 43 through Exodus chapter 13, verse 16. So Exodus chapter 12, verse 43 through Exodus chapter 13, verse 16. This is... This is the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. Chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord has brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, and all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for an opportunity for us to gather together in your name and around your word. We believe that this is your word. God, we believe that you have divinely inspired every single word that we just read. And that in your grace and in your providence and in your power, you have preserved these words. And there are literally millions of reasons why these words have been written. But because of how you work, we know that today in this moment is one of them. And so, God, I ask that you would speak to us. God, the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would teach us 
your word. Teach us from the scriptures how to understand, how, what to see, and how to apply what we see. And God the Son, Jesus, I pray that you are exalted. Our hope is to lift you high. And as we attempt to do that, Father, I pray to draw men and women and children to yourself. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you probably noticed that's a pretty good chunk um, of Exodus that we're biting off today. Um, you probably noticed over the last couple of weeks we've taken some bigger chunks, but this particular one might make more sense just because there's so much that's repeated. There is a lot of repetition in the book of Exodus. That's something if you study it that you pick up on pretty quickly. And, and so what I'm, what I don't, well, not say don't plan to do because I haven't done it in the last two services. So I'm pretty sure it's not going to happen in this service. I'm not going to go a verse at a time like we typically would. And so there are going to be things that um, you know that I just read that we're, we won't talk about in here. It's just that really easy to run out of real estate on a, on a Sunday morning and in the Sunday morning time slot. And so that's one of the good things about community groups and equipped groups. And then also the fact that we live in community together. So we can have conversations and answer questions and ask questions throughout the week about a particular passage. So it's not limited to this time on Sunday morning, but there will be some things that I won't discuss. So what I hope to do is I think we see here in, in, at the end of chapter 12 and in the, in the first part of verse for, um, thir- uh, chapter 13, excuse me, is, is I think God is giving His people a full picture of salvation. So through the Feast of Unleavened Bread... God is first teaching His people, the Hebrews, a full picture of salvation. I think He does that in three ways. And so, um, obviously, this not, it isn't just going to apply to the Hebrew people. And so, we also get a full picture of, of salvation. So, we're going to cruise along for about 15 or 20 minutes, looking at the three ways we get this full picture of salvation. Then we're going to take an exit. So, look, if you're asleep and we take this exit... Just like on a road trip, and then you wake up, you're not going to know where we are. You're going to be confused and be like, but I thought we were in Exodus. Why are we in 1 Corinthians 5? And so the exit, I'm going to tell you up front, the exit that we'll take is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, is what we'll look at. And what I hope to do there is to show you um, uh, from Scripture a New Testament application of what the Lord is teaching in Exodus chapter 13 and, and at the end of chapter 12. All right, so let's dive in. At the end of 12, God gives further instructions for the Passover. And then at the beginning of 13, there is some repetition of instructions that have already been given. He's added a few more that I won't be able to talk about, but please talk about those in in your community groups, particularly the redemption of the firstborn child. Also, the fact that of the the Passover lamb, there are no bones that are broken. That's That's a beautiful prophecy and it traces all the way back to the Passover lamb, Jesus, who was crucified. And it was prophesied that he would not have one single bone broken in in his body so there is some richness here we just don't have time to look at all of it and and so what we're looking at at the end of 12 and the first part of 13 is that God wanted this feast to be celebrated properly because he wanted to give his people a full picture of salvation now before we dive into these three ways he gives a full picture of salvation I want to remind you that the primary purpose of the feast was to let them know and, and so that they would remember what happened like the the feast wasn't to be something like that, that conjured up these other like more mystical feelings or some other sort of mystical experience or to bring some like something more spiritual to the table than what the feast actually communicated. So the point of the feast is so that they literally remember what happened. Certainly that was perverted over the years, but we tend to do things like that too. Like make things that are good and from the Lord, we make them creepy and not of the Lord and about us. This feast is about what happened. The salvation that the Lord gave them. All right, three ways. The first way we see a full picture of salvation is that the Passover was for God's people. So when you hear me say Passover or Feast of Unleavened Bread in this first part of the message, I want you to think salvation. Okay, God's salvation. So so they're parallel. He's teaching us about salvation through the Feast of Unleavened Bread or through the Passover. So the Passover was for God's people. Look at verse 47 of chapter 12. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. All means everybody. If you look back at chapter 12, verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb. 
If you look at chapter 12, verse 6, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. If you look at chapter 12, verse 16, Moses commands a holy assembly, which meant the entire community was to gather for worship. So there's an emphasis and part of the point of the Passover is so that we know that the Passover is for God's people because God's salvation is for God's people. And so it only makes sense for them to celebrate salvation together. Y'all, this isn't deep. Because they were rescued together. Like that's, that's what he wants them to know. And so he, he commands his people who have been saved together to gather together. What we're doing right now, even though in COVID era it's less people. But to gather together in holy assembly. We're, we're commanded to do that and to remember the goodness and the salvation of the Lord. And when we do that, he meets with us in ways that he doesn't otherwise. He doesn't. And so not only does this communicate the salvation, I'm sorry, that the Passover was for God's people um, in the positive, it also communicates it on the negative side as well. And, And so these instructions about the Passover aren't just about who should participate or how to participate, but if you notice, they're also about who should not participate. You remember last week when um, Israel left Egypt, it said a mixed multitude went along with them. And, and, and all we can really figure on who that is, is there are other ethnicities and other people groups that lived in and around Egypt that were certainly enslaved, similar to the way that the Hebrews were enslaved. And so they had a moment where Egypt was weak. All heck literally had broken loose over the past few weeks and months. And so they just found their way right there standing beside the Hebrews, bebopping on out of there. But like with any mixed multitude... There's a mixed multitude with mixed motives. And so all of them didn't exit. um, Their exodus from Egypt was not about the glory and honor and worship of the Lord. It was simply about, we're getting out of here. Like we're free. We We can go now. And so there are these mixed multitudes of people, other people groups that are walking step by step with the Hebrew. And the danger is, here's the danger. And this is the full picture of salvation that it's God saves his people. And so God prescribes very specific ways for people to come to him. And so what he does is he says of these foreigners, of these sojourners, if they're going to come to the table, then they have to go through the Abrahamic covenant, which involved circumcision. So the only way if they desire to honor the Lord, if they desire to have a seat at the table of the Lord, then all of the males had to be Circumcised because in the Old Testament that was the sign of the covenant that the Lord made with his people. So he makes it clear that everyone can participate, but only after they identify with the people of God in the way that God has prescribed. And friends, that's still true today. We do not have the luxury of inviting people to the Lord and telling them they can come to him any way they want to. Because that's not true. The way for us, in the Old Testament, it's the circumcision and that covenant with Abraham. For us, what what that has ushered in is a new covenant through Jesus. And so the only way that any individual can get a, a seat at the Lord's table, or to say it another way, remember this paralleling with salvation, or can be saved is in the way that God has prescribed, and that's Jesus. Like that's the only way. You cannot be religious enough. You can't be pretty enough. You can't be handsome enough. You can't be strong enough. You can't be rich enough. You can't create uh, enough cute names for your new way to get to God and have signs and have, you can even have a following. But if you are not showing people the only way to get to the Father, which is Jesus Christ, then you, in fact, are not a part of the people of God and you're certainly not bringing people to Him. We always come to the Lord in the way that He prescribes. We do not have the freedom... To just come to Him how we want to. It's very important for us as a New Testament church, particularly in the time that we live in, particularly in the time that we live in, that people don't like absolute truth. People don't want to hear that Jesus Christ is the only way. There have been countries all over this world since Jesus walked on this earth that would wanted to and do kill people for saying that. Our country just simply hasn't been one of them yet. 
And I'm not like doomsday, whatever. I'm just telling you, like, we, in, increasingly there's hostility towards the church and they're putting us front and center and wanting us to be clear. And they will say things like, hey, just so we understand where you are, are you saying Jesus is the only way to God? And if we believe the Bible, we say yes. That's what we're saying. And so it was the same deal here. God was teaching him a full picture of his salvation, that it was for his people. And you can't come to him to be saved except in the ways that he has made to be saved. Second, the Passover was to be eaten. You're probably like, well, yeah, genius. It's a meal. So, so, so why does that matter? Well, I want to show you how the Bible emphasizes the fact that it's to be eaten. Because it could have just called it a meal and left off the emphasis. But if you look at chapter 12... Verse 9, he makes it clear. He says, Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its head, its head with its legs, and its inner parts. Now, this is talking about cooking and roasting over a fire the Passover lamb that has just been sacrificed. If you look down at verse 10, And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. So they were to consume the entire Passover lamb. And then at the end of chapter 12, verse 46, he says, It shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take away any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its, its bones. Why does this matter? Like, what's the emphasis on eating the sacrificial lamb? Well, as most of you probably know, at the Passover, on the night of the Passover, the Israelites were identified by the sacrificial lamb and they identified with the sacrificial lamb, particularly the firstborn, because the sacrificial lamb died in the place of the firstborn. Raise your hand in here if you were firstborn. Yeah, the lamb died in our place. So there was an identification just by like a positional identification like we understood that like the lamb died in my place like I was the one that was supposed to die there and so what's the big deal about eating it well whenever like like so now you're commanded to eat the lamb it makes the connection even even closer in fact by eating the whole offering by eating the whole offering they were making a total identification with the sacrifice that God had provided for their salvation Friends, simply this, it was more than a symbol. This meal was more than a symbol. I mean, whenever we take communion, it, it is more than a symbol. Now, you, I'm not saying we go to this, this unbiblical extreme that our Roman Catholic friends go to, and that it being the actual body and blood of Jesus, but it is more than just a symbol. And the reason that the Lord wanted them to eat the sacrificial lamb was because it was more than a symbol. It was a spiritual reality. And what the Lord did was really... Theirs. It was as much a part of them as what they eat and what they drink. And so by ingesting the sacrificial lamb, it's symbolic and actual, speaks to the actual reality of this is who you are. Have you ever heard the saying, I know you have, you are what? You are what you eat. And the New Testament carries this on because this is still true for Christians today. In John chapter 6, Jesus starts that chapter feeding 5,000 plus. Everybody loves him because they were hungry and he did this miracle. Thousands of people are following him. And then he gets to this point where he tells them, I'm the bread. They're like, no, 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 no. We just want the other bread. Like, because we're hungry again and we want the other bread. And Jesus says, I'm the bread. And then he goes on to say, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you have no part in me. And let me tell you, people start peeling off. They start walking away from Jesus because they say these words are too hard. And that chapter begins with thousands of followers. It ends with Jesus looking at his own 12 and saying, do you want to go too? And Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so you see how this is symbolic of the body and the blood of Jesus and how this ushered in the Lord's table that we take. And then the New Testament continues on with this little prepositional phrase that Paul uses so many times, and it's in Christ. This is essentially what it means to be in Christ. And so this um, eating the sacrificial lamb and us taking communion, which represents the body and the blood of Jesus, represents the union that we have with our Lord. Again, giving us a fuller picture, a full picture of his salvation. Look, you can sit on that chair that you're sitting in. You can sit beside that chair. 
You can sit in front of that chair. You can sit behind that chair. You can hold that chair up above your head. But in order for you to be in that chair, you got to somehow get in, like get in that moment. Like you become the chair. It's different than being beside it. Like Jesus is not just carrying us on his shoulders. We're not just getting a piggyback ride from Jesus. He's not dragging us along. What his salvation means and what eating of the sacrificial lamb communicates is that because of Jesus as our ultimate sacrificial lamb, we have this union with the Lord that is just as much like the union that your body creates and has with the food that you eat. It becomes a part of who you are. It's all about your identity. And so God teaches them Passover was for His people. Passover was to be eaten. Lastly, the Passover told a story. And whenever God's people were to celebrate the Passover, they were, they were supposed to talk about what it meant. And, and the ones who did the explaining primarily were the parents. It, it was up to the parents. It was the parents' responsibility to speak to their children about the spiritual things. If you look at chapter 13, verse 8 through 10, you shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year to year. Each child learned the meaning of salvation from their parents. And those parents had learned the meaning of salvation from who? Their parents. Now I know every situation is not conducive to this. I'm not that naive and neither is the Bible. The Bible is simply teaching us the way that God intends for it to be. But there is sin and there is brokenness in a lot of homes but also, I want you to look around right now. This is more than just your biological family. This is the faith family that God has placed you in. And so we all have a responsibility towards one another. And so whether you have biological children or not, or whether you ever have biological children, or if you've got a house full of them, like some people around here, then we have a responsibility. And that responsibility is to teach our kids about salvation. To teach them the gospel. And it's true. It's true. Now, I don't think this can happen, but it, it is true that in any particular family, church, or nation, the gospel is literally one generation away from extinction. Now, that never will happen because God's building His church. But I think we need to feel the reality of that. Like, by God's design, the means that God has ushered in to continue to spread His gospel is by His people opening their mouths and passing that on to the next generation. And so if that stops, there's not a plan B. If we don't tell the generation under us, it's lost. It's forgotten. And so this, this Passover told a story that was meant to be communicated over and over and over and over again so that the, the children and the adults, but the children primarily would have a proper understanding. But then they would also have this, this consequent like application to what it meant to be the Lord. So think about what this Passover feast entailed now because it's teaching you about salvation. Quick recap. The Passover is for God's people. So essentially, this is what God has done for you. You are His and then we get to understand that more because we're eating this sacrificial lamb and it's going to be a part of who we are. Like literally. It's going to break down and nourish our body. So keep telling this story. That's what the Passover is saying. Like keep telling it over and over and over and over again. And, and there was a constant rehearsal of what God had done and I'll be honest with you, this is when I got, I'm going to call it a holy distraction in my study. Because I started thinking a lot about this feast and like, look, just a deep desire for me to understand this and know how to apply it to my own heart and life. And then a deep desire to 
communicate to you in a way that you apply and, and you can understand it in your life. So I started thinking about how this story has been told. Because we're actually still doing this morning what the Lord has commanded His people to do and continuing to tell the story of the Passover. And for those of you that don't have kids yet or you're, you, you are kids, this is so you hear it. And the point is that you hear it and you believe it and you learn of God's salvation and then you pass it down to, to your children as I thought through that, I just thought, man, it just seemed like that preach is so easy. You know what I mean? Like that just, that sounds right. It makes sense to everybody. But like, what does this actually mean? What is a, a deeper application of the Feast of Unleavened Bread for the New Testament church? And this is when we take our exit. So if you're not, if you are awake, we're exiting off to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, we're going to see the Feast of Unleavened Bread used to illustrate the importance of what it means to be the Lord's and how to apply it. Now, I really don't want this to feel like two different sermons. Most of that is on me, but some of that is going to be on you as the listener to keep in your mind the context of Exodus chapter 12 in 13. In the first couple of verses, we're not going to see it quickly how they apply, but I promise you, once we get into the, the center of this section of 1 Corinthians 5, you're going to start hearing familiar words. Okay? And you're going to see Paul take the feast that we've just talked about, and you guys ought to be educated on and up on, and we're all like it's fresh on our minds, and we'll see a proper New Testament application of what we've learned for the last couple of weeks. Verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Now, Paul is obviously confronting a, an atrocious, wicked sexual sin. One that by his... I mean, he, he says one that the pagan, and a pagan is an unbeliever, one that the world essentially doesn't even tolerate. Now among this church at Corinth, these people who are professing believers and followers of Jesus Christ, among their congregation, there is this nasty sexual sin, particularly this dude has some sort of relationship, evidently not a good one, not an appropriate one, with his stepmother. That's the context. Verse 2. This is what Paul says. And you, church, he's writing to the elders, and you are arrogant. The reason the church at Corinth was arrogant was because they boasted in their spirituality. If you do much reading in these letters, then you see that. They had this gross misrepresentation of the Spirit's work, of the fruit of the Spirit, and the gifts of the Spirit. It makes it clear. And so they, they beat their chest and boasted in being this super, hyper-spiritual People, Paul says you're arrogant. That's what he says in verse 2. Ought you not rather to mourn? Like you're, this sin is open and people know about it. And in your arrogance, you're still beating your chest like you're so spiritual. That's what he says. Let him who has done this be removed from you. So this group, this church, has considered themselves spiritual while ignoring obvious, open sin in the life of the church. And their response has been arrogance by Paul's words, but the response should have been brokenness, mourning. So Paul knows this has to change. I mean, he, does, he just throws it out there. He says um, in, in, at the end, of, let him who has done this be removed, and then he follow, follows that up, which you would, it would have to be this way, with some weighty words. Hang in there with me. We're going to get back to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I promise. Just hang in there. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This man that is in sin, Paul is ordering these elders to confront him 
And if he's not repentant, he is to be excommunicated. Paul's primary concern here is not the public's perception of the church. Paul's primary concern here is the actual purity of the church. He doesn't care what the world thinks about you in the sense of how spiritual you appear to be. Are you really? That's what he's confronting. And so he says, confront him. If he does not repent, excommunicate him. Church discipline. So, so again, keep in mind, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. No. This excommunication, this is so important. It's partly for the man's soul. In this day and age we live in, you start talking like this, and I'm going to tell you what. It's like kicking an ant bed. I feel so judged. I feel like you're judging me from my, like we're all sinners. Okay, like I get it. But what Paul see, Paul sees that this church has opened sin and they've ignored it, and so it, it has to be confronted. And he says, remove the man. But they're not doing it from this position of spiritual elitism. I mean, they're not standing up on this high horse, going, "Okay, we're the elders and we're the spiritual ones, and we've been watching you, Jared." And you can't do that. So you're gonna have to go. Either repent, let everybody know about it, or you have to go. And and with the posture that I don't have my own. But this excommunication, did you notice? Turn this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Those are hard words. Turn the sinner over in hopes that their flesh is destroyed so that maybe they turn to the Lord and their soul is saved. You see that? That's the point of the excommunication. That's the point of the church discipline. It's not because we're so much better. It's because we care about your soul. I don't care what you think about me. I don't. And so I, like, I, 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 don't, I want you to love me enough not to care what I think about you that if you see open sin in my life and I see open sin in your life, We have to care enough about one another's soul to say, hey, you can't can't do that. It's partly for the the soul. It's partly for the sake of the whole church. Because here's the reality. And I don't want to heap more burden on you because it's about to be released in a second. But still, individual sin is not only individual. It's just not. If you're a part of a biological family or if you're a part of a faith family, your sin affects everybody. No matter how secretive it seems, your sin will ultimately affect everybody. I promise you that. And so in our church, this is what Paul's teaching us. Like this individual sin, it's not just about him. It's how it affects everyone. So where do you expect him to go from here? I know, I know it's odd. I know it. Like you did not expect to sit in here and hear about this kind of sexual sin and excommunication and church discipline while we're going through Exodus 13. So where would you expect Paul to go from here? Well, divinely inspired, he injects the Feast of Unleavened Bread into the conversation, which gives us a proper New Testament application. And this will help the church at Corinth. It helped the church at Corinth. And it can help us to wake up and understand that they've had a complacency towards sin. So he used the Feast of Unleavened Bread to show them that they need to awaken to their complacency towards sin. Look at verse 6. You're going to start hearing some familiar language. And this is so good, you guys. Try to zero in. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know, and they do, they do know. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and Truth. So Paul is appealing to the practice that we've read about the last few weeks of the removal of leaven or the yeast from their homes. 
It was to be out of their presence. Do you remember it began with, don't cook your bread with leaven. And then it built. Don't have leaven in what? Your house. And then if you notice today in 13, it built. Not only do you not put leaven in the bread and do you not put leaven in the house, but don't even have it. Anybody see the word? In your territory. Get it out. And so Paul helps us understand the New Testament. In the New Testament, leaven is representative of the corrupting nature and power of sin that spreads and affects others. And so again, we're going back and forth here. But it's so appropriate. It's actually so appropriate for the church at Corinth to be reminded in this way. Why do you say that? The reason that I say that, I love when y'all ask questions that I plan on answering. The reason that I say that is because sin is like leaven. And I'm certainly no authority on this subject. Not even close. I'm not a bread baker. Got maybe a few back there in the back that have cooked some bread. But I've eaten enough bread and been around enough bread cooking, baking. Is that, is that right? Do you bake? Yeah, you bake it. To know some things. And here's what I know. And I'm no authority. But when bread is baked, just a small quantity of yeast or leaven is added. And then it's fed. And it's fed. And eventually, whenever that... Well, well before it's placed in the dough, it's fed. You've got to keep feeding it. And then the yeast stays alive. And then you place a little bit of the yeast in the dough. And that little bit of yeast begins to work its way through the whole loaf and causes the whole loaf to rise. Sin is like leaven. It spreads. And so this man's sin, if tolerated, will spread and according to Paul and his conviction, adversely affect the entirety of the church, like that's what he's concerned. He's concerned with this man's soul and he's concerned with the purity of the church. And he said, if you leave this man here, it's, he will work. It will function exactly the way that leaven functions in a loaf of bread. It will work its way through the whole lump and the whole thing will be corrupted. And so the meaning is if this sin is not confronted, the effect of this sin will be felt throughout everyone. And so Paul, again teaching through the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the unstoppable nature of sin and its effect on those that are associated with it. And so because of that reality, this man must be stopped and he must be disciplined. They are to get rid of the leaven. They aren't to flirt with it. They aren't to tolerate it. They aren't to ignore it. They aren't to cover it up. No, they're to cleanse it out. They are to get rid of it. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. Purge the evil person from among you. It's clear. Get it out. There's no, this isn't a maybe. This isn't an option. This is what you do. As that pressure builds, I want you to also notice how he applies the feast in verse 7 and why he applies the feast. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. That is the same type language that's found at the beginning of Exodus 12. Do you remember? When God institutes the feast and he tells them about it, he says, this is the beginning. This is the beginning of a, a new day. Not only did he, he flip their whole calendar, he flipped the way they tell time. He's rescuing them out of Egypt, 430 years of bondage, and everything's going to be new. From this point forward, it's different and it's new. You're going to be able to worship me. The world will know that you are mine. It's all going to be new. But Paul doesn't say even though he uses that language and he's pointing back to that, he doesn't say, now go be this in order to become this. Look at verse 7, the last part. Cleanse out the old leaven 
that you may be a new lump. And so there's a comma there. And if this imperative is about what we are to do, then there would be a period instead of a comma. But there's a comma. And the imperative is the command. But listen to this. The indicative. The declaration. The fact. Our Passover lamb. No, no, no. As you really are unleavened. So, it's not go be what you can be so that you become something new. It's no, go be a new lump. Watch this because that's what you already are. You see that? Completely different. And so Paul has the uh, courage to confront these people in their sin, but he does so in a way that is so faithful to the true gospel and how he could write this church at Corinth. Like I would, you think his editor would say, um, like rush to his side and say, Paul, you just called the church at Corinth unleavened. Like you realize that. You need some white out. You might want to say that a different way. These people are living in sin. It's wicked. And you called them unleavened? That's remarkable. But Paul would say, oh, no, no, no. There's no need for a whiteout. I'm just telling them the truth. And then he would say and write what he wrote if his editor had come. That was, you know, obviously all hypothetical or just some little something I imagined in my mind. But look at the last part of verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new love. That's not, hey, go be this so you can earn this. No, go be this because you already are this. Well, how can you write this to the church at Corinth? For, the, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul, how can sinners at Corinth be considered unleavened? And he would say, because... Christ, their Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That is good news. That is good news. The glorious truth from a glorious gospel. Paul always talks this way, by the way. All imperatives, which an imperative is just a clear, gracious command, come after... An indicative. An indicative is something that's already been declared. It's a, it's a fact. And so in Paul's writing, the indicative always, the fact, the declaration always comes before or precedes the imperative. The command. Remove the old leaven. Why? Because you are unleavened. They are to live a certain way because of who they already are. They are to be what they are. We are to be what we are, this, if this order ever gets reversed, please listen to me, I'm almost done. You lose the gospel. You lose it. If it ever is reversed into you got to go be whatever you can be in order to earn God's salvation and to become His child, you'll never get there. Ever. Ever. There was no hope for the church at Corinth. There's no hope for Safe Haven Church. There's no hope for any church. If this order is reversed... You lose the gospel. You lose it. And so, again, church at Corinth, go live unleavened, not to try to make yourself unleavened, but because you are. Because your Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Safe Haven Church. Go live holy in obedience to the Lord. Not to earn His favor. Not to earn His love. Not to try to bear your salvation. But because Christ, your Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. When we come to Him by faith, we identify with the blood that was shed at Calvary. The Bible says we're, we're clean. We're forgiven. Positionally, positionally, if you have faith in Jesus this morning and you've trusted Him, you've been adopted into His family, and positionally, you are as righteous as you will ever be. You can enter into God's holy courtroom right now on the merit and the work 
of the Passover lamb. Practically, you got to make good decisions. Fight the good fight of faith. Press on toward the goal. Strive. All these words that Paul uses. But you're not striving, trying to grab the salvation. The salvation is the bulldozer behind you. It's pushing you and it's taking you along because you already are His. You want your life to reflect what you are. So because of all that the Lord has done, He tells the church at Corinth, an application of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is to get rid of this leaven. If you won't repent, get rid of it. You can't tolerate sin. Friends, listen to me. In your life, in my life, we cannot tolerate sin. Even the smallest sin. John Owen in his book, The Mortification of Sin, has a simple yet powerful sentence. Kill sin or it will kill you. Literally only two options. Kill sin or it will kill you. And I care enough about you to ask you this question. And y'all know, I probably don't even have to say this, but this, this passage has already cracked my heart open, okay? So I'm, I'm, not, I'm a sinner and I have a lot of shortcomings and I have a lot of things that the Lord is dealing with my heart specifically on. And He's been faithful to do that. And so I'm not coming at you as someone who's spiritually elite. I'm not. I'm up here because I have a different gift set than you do. We're both equally valuable to the kingdom of God and necessary for His church. But I care too much not to ask, is there a particular sin that you have been tolerating? Small in your mind, it's one that you don't think there's any need really to be concerned about. It, it seems harmless or, or, or maybe on the flip side of it, maybe you walk in here this morning and you have something in your life that has been consistent and you know it's sin. Like maybe everybody doesn't know about it, but there's none of this like, oh, I think it's safe. Like you know it's not safe, but you're continuing to function in that sin. I just wonder how many of us maybe walk in week after week after week with this attitude and mindset towards sin and because of the way the Lord led us this morning in this particular text we have a clear presentation of what our attitude towards sin should be listen to me not just your attitude about your sin but your attitude about my sin and my attitude about your sin like it's to be taken seriously and and so if, if that's you if you've come in here this morning tolerating and ignoring sin this this message is for you. And I don't want you to hear that as some frustrated rebuke. That's not what it is. That's not how the Lord disciplines His children. The Lord convicts His children and disciplines His children out of kindness, not frustration. He's better than your earthly dad at this. Okay? promise you. He's not punishing you out of frustration he's punishing you out of kindness and out of love and so that's you this morning what you do with that sin is you confess it you forsake it you get rid of it you get help if you need help let us know we'll find some way some person somehow to get you help but you need to get rid of it and commit to get rid of it and i'll add this immediately because sin is like leaven and it spreads And it never intends to stop. It wants to destroy your family. It wants to destroy your life. It wants to ultimately destroy your soul. If you don't believe me, I'm begging you to take my word for it. I'm begging you because the word teaches us plainly the horror of sin. Don't tolerate it. Don't don't tolerate it. Don't tolerate it. And don't let one another tolerate it. We can't. There's too much at stake. To let one another tolerate sin. And so, I thought about uh, this. Uh, this may just be a really weird way to end it. Um, I probably should ask somebody how, in the first two how it went. But I, I couldn't help but think this week about the blue bug light. 
Have y'all ever seen? Are y'all like those things are fascinating. We don't have one, kids. You obviously we don't, but I would really love for us to get one and just put it out and just sit out there on those summer nights out in the country and you just listen to bugs getting zapped. And I, I, I vividly remember sitting one night. I don't remember where I was, but I remember the bug light. And I was, I was sitting beside it for whatever, whatever we were doing. I don't know, but it was for hours. And I remember thinking, what are they thinking? Like, how are bugs still flying up to this light? I mean, you literally can hear it. You know, I mean, they just zapped. And, and not only that, the bugs are flying around and their they're, they're family and friends, they've watched them get zapped. Not only that, there's a metal tray under the light with the dead bodies of all their mosquito friends and all their little beetle friends and all their little moth friends. They kept flying to the light. But yet here they are flying around the light. And I'm assuming they're thinking, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. It's not that dangerous. I'm strong enough. I'm smart enough. And then you sit there long enough and you keep hearing what? All night long, they keep getting closer and closer and closer and closer. And you and I know what happens. They get zapped. We're smarter than bugs. We're smarter than bugs. We are what's called the Imago Dei. We're made in the image of our Creator. However, I see similar patterns in our lives. We've seen our friends' families destroyed. We've seen the horror of some of these things. Yet we keep getting closer and closer and closer and closer. And then we're just shocked, literally and figuratively, when we get shocked. How did this happen? Like I've said, don't watch me walk off a cliff. Please, don't let me fly into the dang light. Because I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I need help. You need help. We need each other. And we need to be able to be honest about that. We have to be. We need to be able to be transparent. We need help. And if we tolerate sin or... Or boast in the way that the church of Corinth was going, I'm just going to have to maintain this certain spirituality. I have to look a certain way to the community and to my family. Paul would say, shut your pie hole and quit worrying about what everybody else thinks. Care deeply about your own purity and the purity of the church. It's real. And move towards that. No matter how messy, no matter what it takes, people are going to hate you. People are going to say, you judged me, whatever. Be willing. Be willing. To confront your sin, be willing to have your sin confronted for the sake of your soul and for the sake of the purity of the church. If you would bow your heads.